There's definitely more of a conversation around a very kind of long, sustained period of growth, reaching the, the end of a credit cycle and how people can then diversify themselves such that if, uh, if we do go into, into a contraction or we do go into a bit of high default, and then they're ultimately positioned uh, to benefit from that. So I think uh, a greater allocation in, into special situations and distress would be one of those things. I think, you know, we, we all talk about, well, what is the trigger? Well, maybe, maybe we're seeing the trigger. Uh, maybe we are seeing something that wasn't expected, but now may well uh, start to put more companies in, into that kind of space. That was Stuart Matheson. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode four of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, so the latest episode is in your podcast queue every other week. On today's show, I spoke with Stuart Matheson and Brian High. Stuart and Brian are portfolio managers within Bearings Global High Yield Group, and they are responsible for leading the firm's investments in stressed and distressed credit markets. In the conversation, we discussed how recent developments on the macro front and within credit markets specifically are influencing the outlook for distressed debt. We talked about how the universe of opportunities within the distressed space has changed materially relative to the last cycle. And finally, we discussed ways to mitigate risks, especially in the current environment where valuations appear rich across the board. With that, please enjoy this conversation with Stuart Matheson and Brian High. All right, Stuart, Brian, welcome back to the show. And Stuart, thank you for dialing in from London this morning. Good afternoon, Greg. Uh, pleasure to be on again today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us back on. Great. So uh, we spoke six months ago about the outlook for distressed debt. And some things have stayed the same since then, while other things have certainly evolved. I think the focus that distressed debt is getting as an investment strategy has probably only increased since then. And that's evidenced by some of the headlines we're seeing in the financial press. So as an example, Reuters says, investors build war chest to buy bonds of distressed European companies. The Economist says, distressed debt funds are waiting for the downturn. And Bloomberg says, CLO, a limitation fueling opportunities for distressed debt. And of course, there are many, many others. So Stuart, let's start high level. Tell me what's changed in the world of distressed debt since we last spoke six months ago? So I think, I think looking at the data, um, arguably, you could say that, that not a lot has changed. I mean, 2019 was a, was a very strong year for high yield. Um, I think the, the global high yield markets returned 14% and, and they were up, a, up again in January. Uh, against that backdrop, it was tougher in the distressed market. So distressed, I think, was down around 27 2.8% in, in 2019 and, and also leaked uh, a little bit lower in January, principally because of, uh, of, of what we've seen around the energy markets. Now, as distressed investors, we tend all to, to look forward and we, and we talk about what's, what's coming in six months, nine months, 12 months, basically far enough away that you can't really hold us to that prediction mm-hmm. uh, in, the next, uh, in the next few weeks. 
Um, but you're right. I think you look at the headlines, the amount of dry powder, the CLO market, uh, and how that's doing the market. All of that, I think, remains the same. I think what we now have today is is about the volatility. So looking backwards, default rates generally are still somewhere in the kind of 1% to 2% area, slightly higher in U.S. high yield. But it's about what people uh, think going forward. So um, if you ask me what's changed, I think the backdrop uh, hasn't changed that much. But people are now much more concerned about volatility and about the uncertainty that, that, that recent events are, are starting to bring in uh, to the markets. That makes a lot of sense. Brian, we talked a good bit about the private credit markets, direct lending markets last time around. Has anything changed since we last spoke on that front? You know, I think it's it's gotten, um, you know, we, we talked about how aggressive it's been in the markets generally. I think it's um, continued to sort of move in that direction. If you look at sort of the amount of funds that are out there that manage private credit money, it's up 40% since the last downturn. AUM's only up about 9%. So to me, what that says is there's a lot more players out there chasing deals and a lot more players to sort of set the market, if you will, from from a pricing and documentation perspective. So um, that's led to even more of a proliferation of Unitronch deals where you, you have stretch senior uh, transactions that are moving even deeper in the capital structure in order for them to be able to charge the the, the rate that they need to get the return they promised their investors. So I think there's just been, you know, a continuation of aggressive behavior within that market. And Stuart, you mentioned uh, the CLO market. There's definitely been some headlines around that. Our structured credit team uh, just put out a, a piece uh, addressing some of that. But tell me from your perspective, what's going on there and, and how does that tie into the distressed market? I think the the main way it starts to impact our market is is if you think about how how much CLOs have really driven, uh, in particular, leveraged loan space. Um, the fact that spreads have tightened has left managers really looking to to manage their spread arbitrage across across those vehicles, and and they tend to do that um, by by starting to buy more single B credit, particularly down in the B two. B3 space. My experience is that most managers probably have one or two situations where they're really focused on discounted names where they can build par value. Uh, and then around that, they're really struggling to manage their wharf test. It's probably exacerbated by the fact that Moody's in particular have a lot of credits on negative watch at the moment. And, and from a CLO test perspective, B3 negative watch gets treated as a, a triple C asset um, from a, a wharf test. Um, so what what does that mean? What it, what it means is if you end up with some very interesting technical pressures as names migrate down the credit spectrum, particularly in that B3 space, and move into, say, B3 negative watch or even triple C, uh, then ultimately you'll see um, a lot of herd selling of those names uh, as managers try and get their funds back into compliance. So um, it's just another element, I think, that introduces more volatility based on a technical that doesn't necessarily follow um, a credit fundamental uh, view at the same time. Yeah, and just to add to that, if you look at sort of the the price of the liabilities within that market, it's it's still relatively wide. I think uh, our, our structured credit folks would, would agree with that. Um, and so they are looking to find higher spread names to put within their portfolios. And a lot of those are in the lower end of the middle market. So if you were to look at what the holding lists of some of the smaller, call it less than $500 million, maybe even less than $300 million loans, a lot of them are CLOs. And so liquidity in that is, is quite tight. And the amount of coverage that those names get is, is not very large. So when those names need to sell, when they want to get out, the prices move quite drastically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So interesting dynamics, both in the private credit space and in the structured credit space that could 
ultimately result in some opportunities for distress strategies. Stuart, the other thing that's obviously going on, you mentioned some of the market weakness that we've seen very recently. Um, you know, there's there's a number of macro situations that investors are really focused on right now. Coronavirus, obviously chief among them as we speak, but US elections, Brexit, trade war still out there. There's a number of things on that list. So uh, with so many unknowns, just from that macro perspective and, and, and what the ultimate impact of those could be on the global growth outlook, how do you even start with factoring some of these into the equation as you're trying to make investment decisions? I think um, to some extent, it can be quite difficult. Uh, investors Investors probably focus on what they can see. So um, you talk about something like Brexit, um, how the UK reshapes its uh, its relationship with the EU has been a big focus, certainly from our client base uh, that we speak to here in here from London, but and also because there are a number of credits um, that directly uh, relate to demand patterns and supply chains that go across. Uh, those borders. Ultimately, it's probably a relatively modest subset um, of the European leverage finance base, however. I think the thing with the coronavirus, and and, and it's worth reflecting the fact that um, we're we're doing this call at a particularly uncertain time, is that that people are are guessing what the impact is going to be. I don't think we know how long the impact will last, how deep um, the impact will be, and whether or not we're looking at a, a V or a, a U-shaped recovery. Uh, in Europe right now is is digesting uh, everything that's going on in Italy. So what that means is is there's more volatility um, that we're seeing across traded prices today. Um, I think thereafter, what we'll probably observe are two impacts. One will be earnings, and um, we'll, we'll definitely see uh, contraction of demand across uh, a whole range of sectors, and some sectors may even may even benefit. But but ultimately, mm. there will be a big uh, a big uh, reduction in demand when you take the market as a whole. Um, but but the impact thereafter is really difficult because ultimately you know, we're dealing with some very complex uh, global uh, supply chains. And we also don't know what response you'll get from from the various governments around around the globe. So, to the extent that other governments start to impose quarantines, that could further impact things. Um, so, I said we'll see an earnings dip, but but thereafter, supply chain I think becomes more complex, more interesting. Companies may run out of, of stock. Um, we see that with uh, the headlines. Apple have have come out and said that they um, they they're, they're struggling sure, to. Sure. Uh, fulfill their demand. I think you see that across, notably across the automotive space, the retail space. So, so um, ultimately, industries where um, a lot of the supply chain directly links uh, to China. From a distress perspective, how does that knock on? Um, so, um, it defaults typically come around because of liquidity issues. Um, so, when you think about reduction in earnings, when you think about um, supply chain uncertainty, I think it'll be interesting to look at the impact of liquidity that follows from that. Uh, and certainly, around the margins, there'll be a number of businesses where I think, um, you know, if they were scraping by, um, the impact may be maybe more severe, and, and that could that could really start to impact. I think some uh, situations uh, around the global higher markets. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's, um, if you look at sort of capital structures generally within the market because of how strong the markets have been and the ability to issue debt, uh, there are a number of capital structures that are kind of, uh, I would call it geared for perfection. So if you start messing around with supply chain, which impacts working capital, and now all of a sudden you have liquidity issues, um, there could be knock-on effects as a result of of what what may happen with coronavirus and my you know your best guess is you're going to start seeing that in earnings in Q1 and Q2 and that's going to get us kind of into the summertime when obviously US elections will be at the forefront of everybody's mind and what does it mean and how can that impact certain sectors within the market regu- regulatory environment and so on mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about how about from a geographic perspective, guys? So we we touched on some of the macro factors. We we've obviously got economies around the world operating at different speeds. We've got, you know, in the distress space specifically, companies having to deal with different legal regimes, uh, different bankruptcy protection laws, et cetera. So, I mean, Stuart, do you have views on where from a geographic perspective you might see distressed opportunities present themselves in the next six, 12, 24 months? Um, I'd separate out the I'd separate out the volatility we're seeing from the jurisdictional uh, challenges. I mean, ultimately, the higher markets, um, even just the syndicated markets, are, are sizable now. So, global global high yield loans and bonds um, total about I think three point five trillion, and there's in excess of three and a half thousand issuers in that space. So. From from our perspective, you'll 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 still get industry themes, whether it's energy, whether it's retail, so things where there's secular changes going on uh, in those markets, and then there's much more idiosyncratic factors. You know, companies who've taken on too much debt, companies who bought other companies and have failed to merge and execute business plans efficiently. Um, so I, I think from our perspective and, and from what from what I observe, we'll still see opportunities really a, a across that whole sphere because it's it's a big space um, and, and there's lots to see. The, the jurisdictional stuff, I think is slightly separate. That's, that's really the tools of the trade. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, how do investors engage around restructuring companies? And of course, we're then into a slightly different question of uh, is, is, is US chapter, um, how does that compare to, for example, the, the UK scheme of arrangement or to a, you know, the, the myriad of different insolvency uh, regimes that exist uh, across Europe. Ultimately, I think investors find a way to do deals. And one of the ways that they'll mitigate their risk in doing those will be around entry prices. So when, when, it's, when it's tough to get control, you'll probably see facilities trade at cheaper prices because people will be factoring that in uh, to, them, to their investment thesis. I think what might be quite interesting and to, remains to be seen is if we go back to that liquidity point, to what extent are uh, transactions either on, in loan or bonds now, uh, do they have various baskets for bringing in liquidity? So if we specifically address that liquidity point, I think it will be interesting to see how sponsors or corporate owners start to use the flexibility they have in their documentation to bridge any short-term issues that we see uh, coming from the, the challenges we've we just discussed. And, and, and essentially, that may well be taking on uh, uh, additional liquidity or, or, or bridge capital in order to kind of smooth um, a, a period of, of stress on companies. And of course, you'll see different flexibility across across the market. So I think I think what, what, what is interesting to me is have a look at the documentation, what is going to be allowed. And, and if you find companies um, that, that could run into trouble if they don't have flexibility, then, then they're likely to become uh, distressed. 
companies with flexibility may have additional levers or tools uh, in order to kind of navigate through these challenges. And one one quick comment to your question, Greg, that I think um, is becoming more and more prevalent. There's there's obviously a lot more global companies within sort of the high yield spectrum generally, um, and and it's been nice to be able to have colleagues on on the other side of the pond that we can talk to around what's the most efficient way to effectuate a restructuring. Um, and I think that that will be even more proliferated within within the next downturn. Where hey, does it make sense for us if even if it's a, a U.S domiciled company, but they have operations all over the globe. Does it make more sense for us to use a UK scheme of arrangement, for example, as mm, opposed to a I chapter 11 okay. bankruptcy proceeding? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Let's talk about the competitive environment. So it seems like we've seen a trend toward mega funds. Um, and that's not just, you know, in the distress space, but also in areas like private credit, other spaces where you've seen uh, managers raising larger and larger funds. Um, I wonder, is there a risk um, that these types of strategies basically all end up with exposure to the same large uh, LBOs? So I'm, I'm wondering basically, you know, if that almost equates to beta risk uh, in the asset class as opposed to something that truly resembles um, alpha generation. I think that's actually a very relevant question, I should say. Um, We've gotten some some calls from some of our LPs, particularly in the fourth quarter of last year when there was quite a bit of volatility on the distress side. Um, I don't know that this is the case, but it may have been driven by the fact that Intelsat, which was a, a is a large name in the index, and a lot of uh, has a lot of distressed money in the capital structure, particularly on the junior side, um, traded off from the mid '80s down into the '40s as a result of the FCC uh, floating the idea of a higher tax on spectrum auction, auctions mm-hmm. out there. So, um, as a result of that, we got some calls, and 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 it was interesting. They sort of wanted us to go through all the big names within. Uh, the index and on the distress side, you know, whether it's PG&E, a large bankruptcy from last year, Intelsat, Weatherford, some of the opioid names, Legato, um, you know, the telecom names, Frontier and Windstream, very large complexes where apparently there was a lot of concentration mm-hmm. with distress managers and some of those large names, which makes sense to me if you have a very large fund, you can source a lot of paper relatively easily within those structures. Um, and it, and it, it's worth your time to spend on those names because you can source so much. Sure, so sure. I, I think there is there is a concern within the market on the LP side that, that perhaps that that is the case. I would I would counter that argument though if you kind of look at the developed mar- markets today versus going into the last downturn, um, it's very different. So U.S. loans, there's 1,400 issuers. That's 20 percent more than they had in 2007. So in, as opposed to looking at total you know dollars, let's look at the number of issuers and the amount of coverage you would have to have to do a bottoms up analysis mm. on each one of those companies. European loans, almost 350 issuers, up 11% from 2007. And within those two markets, well north of 50% are below $500 million debt stacks. So smaller on on the scale of you know these mega deals I just referenced. Mm-hmm. And so in order for you to put capital to work in those capital structures, you're not going to be able to source you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of exposure within those capital mm-hmm, structures. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it it is an investment for you to spend time there and you need to know that you're going to be able to buy a significant portion of the capital structure if you're a mega fund. If not, perhaps sourcing $65 million in a $500 million deal, which is is doable, um, it makes sense. Or you, you can put follow-on capital in there to, again, you know, increase your amount of exposure to that name. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think from that perspective on the loan side, there's definitely... Uh, a lot of opportunity. And then, you know, 
the outlier is European bonds, which I think we talked about, Stuart mentioned on, on our last podcast, where um, there's 362 issuers in that market as of the last data that we have. That's up well over 100%. It's more than doubled since the last wow. downturn. And, and then we can talk about private credit as well, which has taken quite a bit of share from the banks. Um, clearly, that's a market that, you know, uh, you know there's not a lot of st- statistics on from an issuer perspective, but there's there's opportunity there as well. So if you if you have the breadth of coverage to be able to to mine those different asset classes, uh, I, th- I think that you can create alpha. So let's talk about uh, capital deployment in this space. Um you know, it seems like that's a concern that keeps coming up, um, possibly because this credit cycle has gone on much longer than most would have expected. I know there's been examples where capital has been raised in large funds. It's not been invested over the agreed upon time frame and ultimately returned to investors. So, um, you know, we've also seen rising popularity of so-called trigger funds, whereby capital is not called until some agreed upon trigger event has occurred. That could be defaults reaching a certain threshold. It could be high yield spreads widening to a certain level, et cetera. So tell me just generally what you think about the challenges of deploying capital in this type of environment. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good follow on to, to what we just discussed, which is there's a number of names out there that if we have a certain default increase, um, likely the number of issuers that are going to be in default, it's going to increase as well. And so having that breadth of coverage having um, you know access to deal flow both in good and bad markets and knowing exactly where you know th- there's interesting opportunities the idiosyncratic opportunities that that Stuart mentioned earlier not just sector themes I think that's where you you can um, create alpha both in performing markets and uh, and in non-performing markets but uh, you know if you think about trigger funds all it does is kind of add to what we just talked about from a mega fund perspective if if I'm getting you know a couple billion dollars or more at, at a certain trigger point within the market, likely that means that I'm still chasing those larger deals. And it doesn't, I have even more capital. It doesn't make sense to your last point of, do I need to spend a lot of time on this $300 million mm-hmm. deal? Mm-hmm. Probably not because I'm not going to be able to put enough money to work in that in that business unless I want to buy the entire company, which has a lot of risk um, in, in spending time and, and, and basically digging a dry hole, if that makes sense. I think I think I'd add to that one trend that we've we've definitely seen in in Europe, and I'm, I, I expect it to be the same in the US. Is some funds are, are stepping away from secondary market trading um, because there just hasn't been uh, in those large cap stacks enough scale, enough size for them to trade, and and, and where they're tending to end up is I talked about that those documentation points and the ability for companies to use buckets to to take on additional capital. I think people are now starting to to look at these flexible capital funds and, and try and bring uh, bridge capital at high returns to uh, to sponsors where the capital structure is probably already stressed or, or, or stretched. Um, I think what's interesting to that is I mean that that is essentially moving uh, the distressed market towards the private finance market. Mm. Um, and whilst uh, I'm sure the returns can be very, very attractive there, what we may see over time is, is again, just funds going into that space will put pressure again on, on the economics of doing those uh, kind of deals. So, you know, it, it's a response to a market force where there's an opportunity, um, but we may see that, that the rich opportunity that existed maybe uh, last year um, somewhat gets squeezed 
um, as more and more funds go into into that kind of space. The attraction, of course, is that if you're doing those kind of deals, then you can typically deploy a significant amount of dollars in one go. So um, you both are out speaking with institutional investors around the globe all the time. Um, I'm curious about what you're hearing in terms of their approach to distressed debt. Wondering if you're seeing investors ramp up allocations, you know, given where we are in the cycle. And I'm also curious, you know, Stuart, you kind of alluded to this, but, you know, where are investors bucketing these distressed strategies? I'm, I'm curious if they're, you know, thinking of them as part of a fixed income allocation or more opportunistic credit or even comping them more to more exotic type asset classes that generate income like equipment financing, you know, royalties, aviation financing, all that kind of stuff. So maybe Stuart, um, if you want to start with with what you're seeing in Europe, that would be interesting to hear. Yeah, I think the short answer would be all of the above. I think investors are definitely diversifying where they're investing today, in part because it, it, it's really difficult to show, I think, huge conviction to any one particular type of strategy. So perhaps having more of a hedge uh, at this point is is sensible. From a manager who works within the high-yield space, we see lots of data. And actually, corporate earnings on a, on a look-back basis, notwithstanding what we're about to, I think, see uh, in the next couple of quarters has been pretty robust. So, you know, from 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 our investors' perspective, you know, we, we we see what's happened in the equity markets in the last year. In, in January, we see what's happened in the credit markets. People uh, up to very recently have been, I think, really bullish about um, the overall environment and possibly where where global growth was. Now, that that may change. Um, most of the discussions clearly that Brian and I have had with investors probably predate um, some of what we're we've been discussing on, on, on this call. Um, but, but I think what is true is that there's definitely more of a conversation around, you know, a very long, uh, a very kind of long sustained period of growth, uh, reaching the, the end of a credit cycle and how people can then diversify themselves such that if, uh, if we do go into, into a contraction or we do go into a period of high default, and then they're ultimately positioned uh, to benefit from that. So I think uh, a greater allocation in, into special situations and distress would be one of those things. Um, I think there's still very strong demand for, for, for private credit. Uh, we see that uh, fundraising uh, cycle seems to continue unabated at the, for the time being. And then, as you mentioned, Greg, that, that there's lots of different types of structures, long-term assets, um, such as royalty, such as aviation, uh, where I think people are now buying into um, buying into a story of uh, long-term income generation mm-hmm. um, and, and using that, again, to diversify away from perhaps core asset classes. So um, distress is definitely more on people's uh, agenda, on their radar. Um, I don't think it's been a wholesale move away from, from performing credit, and I think there's generally been a story of diversification across the piece because of that lack of conviction. I would, I would hope, as a distress manager, that what we see uh, in terms of the current conversation may well uh, start to uh, push people into making even bigger allocations into into distressed uh, dis- the distress space because I think you know we we all talked about well what is the trigger well maybe maybe we're seeing the trigger uh, maybe we are seeing something mm-hmm. that wasn't expected but now may well uh, start to put more companies in into that kind of space so um, it'll be interesting I think when we go on our next round of discussions what the feedback will be mm-hmm. uh, from the investor base yeah and I would say in the U S um, if you think about how LPs are are, are positioned. 
most of them have a core allocation to to fixed income. So be it high yield bonds and loans, that's kind of always there. And it can shrink and get larger depending on on the opportunity set. And they have a core allocation to call it distressed or special situations. That definitely expands and contrasts given the market opportunity set. However, uh, I think private credit has become such a, a larger portion of what people are doing uh, because of, of you know, that void of capital that was there post the regulatory changes of, of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. There is a pocket of opportunity to take advantage of in that market. Um, but I think now, as we sort of talk, talk to LPs, they're, they're looking to find a natural complement to that as we mature within the cycle. And distressed special situations is, is a natural complement to that. Um, it's something where it's, it's almost a natural hedge to you know, being able to take advantage of the opportunity if your performing portfolios all of a sudden f- find themselves sure, with higher sure. defaults and higher losses. Yep, yep. That makes sense. Kind of covering the full spectrum of performing, uh, non-performing liquid and illiquid credit. Um, guys, I want to finish up uh, talking about risk management. So stressed or distressed investing is almost by nature a risky investment strategy. So you're often investing in companies that have encountered difficult financial situations. I'm curious, how do you mitigate some of that risk or at least price it in a smart way? I think it really just comes down to good old-fashioned diligence, making sure that you do enough work before you invest uh, and then maintain that uh, relationship with the company uh, as, you, as you build a position. Uh, you don't ultimately buy a distressed market or a distressed index. It's, it, it's very much within that you're buying individual positions and, and allocating to individual credits or, or, or situations where you feel that uh, Phil, you may end up having to do something more fundamental with the with the capital structure uh, and own equity. Um, obviously, one way you can protect yourself is being senior in the capital structure, giving yourself real downside protection, ensuring you're, you're, you're the fulcrum security uh, in that name. But 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 fundamentally, it's about really understanding well what drives the business, how does it generate uh, earnings, how does it generate cash flows, how strong is the balance sheet, um, what are the risks that the company is exposed to, um, and and that, I think you do that with big teams. I think what we, we tended to find across uh, across the last uh, several years is that that managers with big teams generally have done well because they can go and do. Uh, significant amounts of diligence before they invest, and then they can continue to do that diligence as they invest. And I, and I don't think that that has that's fundamentally changed. So uh, ultimately, staying close to businesses, uh, making sure that you understand them as best you can, that you meet with management, that you go and visit the company. Um, these are these are the kind of old fashioned tools that people always used to use, and I, and I don't think that's uh, that's changed today. Yeah, and I would just say, you know, from our perspective, you know, everyone likes to invest in good companies. We do too. Um, you know, investing in the right part of the capital structure and and, and investing in, if, if you can do enough due diligence to understand what the issues are that, that drove them into trouble, whether it was just the capital structure itself or maybe even a fixable problem on the operational side. If you have a flexible mandate and you have patient capital, you can take advantage of those opportunities, fix those problems, and obviously make a nice return on the back end. Yeah, yeah. That, that all makes a ton of sense. Well, it is, uh, it's going to be very interesting to watch this cycle develop in the months and, and years ahead. 
And I appreciate the context and the insights from from both of you today. It's very helpful, um, very insightful. And you know, I'd like to have you back again as as this does continue to develop to understand color and and to get the context uh, on the market. So, guys, thank you both, Stuart. Again, thanks for calling in, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Greg. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode four of season two of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you're the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.